text for my sermon this morning are verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 110. This is God's eternal word. It is true. It cannot be broken. Let us give our attention now as it is read. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word has been read, and now may the words of my mouth as the preacher and each one of us as hearers, may may the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The late Peter Drucker, one of the leading management consultants and and business gurus of the 20th century, once told a pastor friend that he viewed church leadership as the most difficult and taxing role of which he was aware. Now that's saying something. This is confirmed by one pastor who has a master's degree in management and left a successful real estate company to enter the ministry. He said bluntly, the business world is much easier than the church. The pastoral ministry is unique in that it defines and affects many areas of our lives. In a book I've been rereading recently called Resilient Ministry, Authors Burns, Chapman, and Guthrie observed that for pastors, work, family, and pastoral responsibilities blur together through the week so that many of us have difficulty knowing when we're on and when we're off. In short, if you're a pastor, you know you have a tough job and it isn't always well understood or appreciated. Many problems which arise from this vocation, some of them are fatigue, hypocrisy, cynicism, people-pleasing. For some of us, temptations that we're afraid to admit or speak of, including doubt and our faith itself. How do we reconcile these hard things about the ministry when Paul says, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. And Jeremiah says, your word is like fire in my bones. How can something so hard be so compelling and so good? I want to explore this question with you this morning in my sermon from Psalm 110, which I've entitled, A Powerful Christian Ministry. I want to encourage you who are called to this pastoral work or who will be called to this pastoral work someday with what makes for a powerful Christian ministry as pastors. I also want, I hope, to challenge you this morning to be renewed in the business of your calling in case you are or are tempted to leave it aside for lesser things. A powerful Christian ministry. Before we dive into Psalm 110, though, I want to consider with you some reasons why your ministry might lack power. 
In the book I mentioned a moment ago, Resilient Ministry, it explores five areas of ministry factors which the authors consider to be crucial for pastors to remain resilient in fruitful ministry for a lifetime. Here are three of them. Spiritual formation, they explain, is the care and feeding of the pastor's own soul. The pastor needs to be growing spiritually. It could be that your ministry is not a powerful Christian ministry because you are not growing as a person, as a Christian. In this book, the, the pastors that were interviewed, and it was like a thousand pastors that were interviewed, some of them shared that they couldn't do devotions without thinking of how they needed to pastor someone from what they were reading. Another ministry factor that they mentioned, which I want to mention here at the outset of my sermon this morning, is self-care. What they mean by self-care is physical, mental, and emotional health. And this may seem trendy or even worldly to some of you. I would ask you this question. If you're not taking care of yourself and getting the kind of sleep that you need, or exercise, or if you're not emotionally at peace with yourself, and your life, and your family, and your situation. How on earth can you be of use to the Lord? Usefulness in the master's service, Onesimus, is our goal. And if we're not at, at one with that in all areas of our lives, you know, we, we teach that, this, that the soul is actually not an invisible thing like a piece of tissue paper, but the soul is the interpenetrated spirit and body of a person. We are whole beings. We are souls. We don't have them. So they talk about self-care, and I thought this quote was particularly helpful. John Stott says, Dying to the old life of self-centeredness and living and rising to a new life of holiness and love. So they quote him, and then they say, your old life may have included slothful or obsessive activities such as inconsistent sleep, bad habits, crazy work hours, poor or neurotic exercise, and an unhealthy diet. That does not sound like someone who has a powerful ministry to me, or not for very long. I think our goal here is to live in a way, as far as humanly possible, that maximizes our effectiveness for the Lord's work. That's the goal. And then the third area I'm going to mention here in these introductory comments are marriage and family health. In order to sustain ministry stress and to experience and enjoy a powerful Christian ministry, which is our topic this morning, pastors must, and here's a quote, focus on the spiritual and relational health of their spouses and their children and their extended family. This is a focus. We're told that, that loving our wives, being a husband of one wife, is not a unique criteria for pastors. This is the average Christian life, loving your wife. So why is it listed in a qualification for elders? It's listed there because as elders and as pastors in particular, we're to have exemplary relationships with our wives. We're to have exemplary relationships with our children. We're to have the kind of 
family relationships that others could see if they could pull back the curtain and say, I want that. One pastor said the most effective way to develop a healthy church is for me to develop and maintain the health of my marriage. Perhaps you are not experiencing a powerful Christian ministry because your marriage is suffering by your ministry or from your ministry. These three areas, spiritual formation, self-care, and marriage and family health, are areas which I think, when weak, point like symptoms of a sickness, the underlying weakness of an impotent, languishing, or otherwise lifeless Christian ministry. Psalm 110, I think, has some crucial truths which can not only help restore ministry weakness, but establish a lifelong, powerful ministry. So the text then, as we come to Psalm 110, I think points the way. I want you to notice, first of all, that a foundation for powerful uh, Christian ministry is the finished work of Christ. Verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse speaks of the Messiah's finished work. Because the messianic son of David described in this psalm, David's son is David's Lord. That's Mark 12 and Matthew 22. Here he is described as sitting at the right hand of God. A seated Savior, a messianic session, is one which is at rest, one which is finished, and one which is complete. So the foundation is finished because Christ is seated at God's right hand. And being seated means that he has completed his work. Kings are seated when the battle is over. They stand when the battle rages. Someone who serves stands in the presence of the one he serves who is seated. Christ, because he's seated, is served by all those around him, indicating that he has been acknowledged as the champion and as the Lord. High priests stand when they minister and perform their sacrifice, but they sit when the sacrifice is complete. And so in Hebrews 1.3 we read, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat at the right hand of God. Your sins are forgiven. The work is done. Packer, in his concise theology, says on this, while Jesus is pictured in the New Testament as standing in solidarity with Stephen in the book of Acts and riding into battle in Revelation 19, the main image of our Savior is sitting a powerful position of completed victory. The work is done. It's finished. That's what he said. I think his seated position proves that he has won the victory. It is not to be repeated. It is not to be rehashed. It is not to be renewed. He sat down because everything necessary for your salvation and mine has been accomplished. He has effected it. There is no further conversation needed. Jesus is Lord. So if you're a Christian minister, the foundation for your powerful ministry is the completed, finished work of Christ. This fact is proven by the fact that he is seated at the right hand of God. I think a second element of this foundation of the finished work of Christ is because God declares it to be done. And these two are related. 
but we see it in this text. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The word for ESV, says, is in fact a very important word for speech in the Bible that's quite unique. It's the word where we translate oracle or a declaration. The CSV says, this is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. The Net Bible says, here is the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. Eugene Peterson's The Message says this, the word of God to my Lord. These more dynamic translations capture the idea of my point. The reality of the statement of Yahweh is that it is not just something that he says. It is something that he proclaims. He announces it. The announcement is that the Messiah is seated at the Father's right hand. It is an oracle of God. This is the word that we get for, the, for one of the books of the Old Testament, Nahum, Nacham. It is an oracle of God. And with the defined Nachams in the Bible, the Lord normally employs or engages authorized messengers to deliver such pronouncements, the prophets, for example. So not just anyone can say, the Lord says to my Lord, the Lord declares to my Lord. Only a prophet can say this. The Nakams in the Bible also carry potential threats. This is what the Lord declares. Beware. As a formula, Nakam occurs hundreds of times in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Minor Prophets. Often in judgment, not infrequently in terms of blessing. In either case, judgment or blessing, because it indicates currency which is backed up by the very heart, mind of an all-determined, unchanging God, this Nakam is tied to his unchanging purpose that his foundation is finished and accomplished. In another context, applied in this context, it makes sense. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The point is this, if God has uttered, oathed, or covenanted to install the Son of David as the conquering and now resting sovereign at his right hand, this utterance, which at the time of speaking it had not yet come to pass, is as good as if it had happened. Once God speaks and it comes to pass, his word is not yes and no, but it is yes. All of God's promises are yes for us in Christ point is this, the foundation of a powerful Christian ministry is complete, not only because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, he is, but God declared it to be so. He has uttered a covenantal oath which can never be broken. He has sworn by himself, finding no one greater to swear by, and that oath, that covenant is sealed in his blood, absolutely, finally, fully, perfectly finished and complete. He has the last word. So verse 4 which I didn't read. The Lord has sworn Nacham and will not change his mind. There is no going back. God isn't wondering what he's going to do here. He's not having second thoughts. Think of it another way. If God's word could be changed or altered in some way, or if his word were like the word of humans, like you and me, fickle, changeable, or alterable, then our ministries would be built on shaky foundations indeed. 
They would not be built on something which we could expect to have true, life-changing, earth-shattering, world-bending power. The mountains would not move from a word of man. But if it's a nakam of God, look out, mountains, because God has spoken and it will come to pass. Nothing is impossible with the word of God. And these things, as I say, go hand in hand. The reason that Jesus was raised from the dead, the reason he ascended into heaven, the reason he entered the throne room of God was openly acquitted and acknowledged before all the host of heaven in the tribunal of God's family and seated to much fanfare at his right hand as the honored son is because God had declared it to be so. He oathed it to come about. He had determined from the, before the foundation of the world to bring many sons of glory, many sons to glory by way of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of his son in our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope to which he was called, the hope to which you have been called, is that God has chosen you in him before the foundation of the world, that he might work a powerful salvation and restoration in your life by raising Christ from the dead, seating him at his right hand in glory in the heavenly places and putting all things under his feet and making him head of all things in the church and then calling you into his service as his servant. That's the finished work and the foundation of a powerful ministry. Much more could be said here, but we must press on to the second point of a powerful Christian ministry is this. A powerful Christian ministry takes place in the context of opposition. Look at our text. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your enemies a footstool. You're ruling in the midst of enemies. And these are not isolated from the rest of the psalm. The whole of Psalm 110 describes an active, powerful ministry of God from heaven on earth in the midst of enemies. This is not an easy path. There are no places or spaces where we are not in constant, regular, deep, profound, strategic opposition by all the enemies of God. This is not a peaceful sachet down the garden path. We are talking about warfare, battle, fighting, opposing powers, unstoppable forces, meeting immovable objects. And this is nothing new. The entire story of the Bible is pitched as one of a heated battle between the serpent's sons and the woman's seed. The entire spiritual genealogy of the human race puts people in one of two categories. It is a binary matter. Either you are God's or you are Satan's. You're either a friend of the Lord or an enemy of heaven. It is the permanent condition of the church. That's why we say it is the church militant. And we have the church in view in Psalm 110. He says, Zion is the place from which the scepter goes. And he says, your people, verse 3, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Whether it's the church in the Old Testament, which is to say the church in its infancy, or the church in the New Testament, which is to say the church in its maturity. This is a spiritual battle. Paul taught us this. He called the Ephesians to remember that they struggle, they wrestle, they wrestle, they grapple, not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces in the heavenly places, with dark powers, enmity, strategies, stratagems. 
subtle, cunning. The battle is real. The battle is mighty. The battle is difficult. Paul also told the Corinthians, who themselves were a deeply divided church, that their warfare was not of a physical or a carnal nature, but a spiritual nature. David's famous 23rd Psalm says the same thing. God prepares a table for his elect in the presence of his enemies. And while he does abundantly furnish them with blessing, he loads them down. Their their cup is overflowing. It is nevertheless an extravagant provision of blessing which is in the presence of God's foes. There is no powerful ministry to be enjoyed except that which is singularly aware of the battle at hand and not just aware of it, but actively engaged in it. Perhaps your ministry is not powerful because you are in denial of the battle or you're not fighting for the souls of men and women, for your own soul, for the souls of your children, of your elders, your deacons, the women in your churches, your neighbors, your friends, your colleagues, community leaders. Perhaps your ministry is not powerful because you've made peace with the gods of this age and the gods of the world, but not the kind of peace that God wants us to have, not the shalom that we're longing for, the renewal of all things, but a peace which overlooks and hides the things for which God wants us to speak. Perhaps part of our ministry fatigue is because the battle is at hand, because it is draining, because it is demanding, because it is exhausting. This is where we need to connect my first point with the second point. The only way we can survive in such a pitched conflict is if we know that the work is finished. I'm not talking about a strident militancy which knows no sensitivity or compassion for the souls of sinners. This is not a summons to a judgmental spirit of criticism or throwing rocks while living in glass houses, a self-righteous aloofness or a censorious spirit. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. He was gentle and lowly in heart. He would not break a bruised reed. He would not extinguish a smoldering wick. But he was in a battle for the souls of men and women, and he had a battle to fight, a mission to accomplish. The stakes were high. Paul picked up on such things when he said no soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. But getting back to my first point, if this is a battle, we should not fight with frowns on our faces. We're fighting with joy because he's finished the work. We're we're battling a defeated foe. What a blessing to engage in a warfare where the outcome is already determined. This should make a difference in the faces that we wear. This should make a difference in our budget meetings, in our preaching, in our teaching, in our counseling, in our marriages, in our parenting, our neighboring, our fundraising, our elder training, our evangelism. We go with confidence and joy into this battle. These are all legitimate fields of contest for the souls of of men and of ourselves. But the battle waged on these fields is one which is marked by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in our hearts, making melody to God and to one another. 
because the battle belongs to the Lord. We're considering this morning what Psalm 110 teaches about a powerful Christian ministry, and I've tried to show you that the foundation is the finished work of Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God, and that the context here is in the midst of our foes. My final point is I want you to see from this mighty psalm that a powerful Christian ministry is one which utilizes authorized equipment. For this point, I'm referring to what David says in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. It's important to notice here that the scepter is the reign and extension of the power of God from heaven on earth in the world. And it comes from the church. So while David doesn't tell us exactly what this scepter is, we know it's the expression of the power of God in heaven, on earth, through the church, in both the Old and the New Testament. So that causes me to conclude, by good and necessary inference, that this is the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Now, it may be other things. It is not less than the Spirit and the Word. It may be more than, but it is not less than God's Holy Spirit and God's Word. The ascended Christ is a powerful Christ. He is powerful for the church. And the reason he's powerful for the church in Acts is because he's poured out his Holy Spirit on his church, training and taking unschooled and ordinary men and making them mighty warriors for Christ. He said to his disciples that it is necessary for me to go away, that God's battles would be fought by way of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor, the Encourager, and the Advocate. This is why Luke's description of his ascension in Luke chapter 24 is an occasion of great joy. Thus, in Christ's ascension and session, Jesus gains the authority to establish his church in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's R.C. Sproul. This authority, which is conferred upon Christ as he is seated at the Father's right hand, is established and demonstrated at Pentecost as we see barrier after barrier fall. And, of course, that book in Acts ends with the word unhindered. What Scripture teaches is that the Spirit is essential to a powerful Christian ministry. This is one which is utilizing authorized equipment as you do the work. You can't do ministry, powerful ministry, sustained powerful ministry in the flesh. Paul directly contrasts spirit and flesh in Romans chapter 8. I'd suggest you reread it. Which brings us to the Word of God. The power of the Word. Christ promised the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit would teach the disciples His Word. He would lead them into all truth, John 14, 26. The entire Christian ministry and all of its power derives from the blessed combination of the Spirit and the Word. The Word and the Spirit. Boving puts it this way, all power for ministry proceeds from the exalted Christ 
who is the Lord of the church, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. He not only spoke the truth, but he is the truth, John 14, 6. He alone grants eternal life, John 1. In fighting falsehood, therefore, he, he greatly commands us to use the weapon that he provides, which is his word. The sword from his mouth, Ephesians 6, Revelation 2, Revelation 19. By his word, Christ judges and separates things, but he also liberates, frees, and gives life. To remain in his word is the calling of his disciples, John 8, 31. We have no other teacher but Christ in and through his word. And through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, we know all things, 1 John 2, 20. This is so we can proclaim his marvelous word, the gospel of his salvation, the power of God, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. God's word is fire. God's word is hammer. God's word is sword. God's word is balm. God's word is water. God's word is life. So the word and the spirit, it is both. It's not spirit or word. This is not an intellectual ministry devoid of the Spirit. It is not a Pentecostal ministry devoid of the Word. This is not Word, Spirit, and liturgy. Word, Spirit, and sacrament. Word, Spirit, and mission. Word, Spirit, and cultural IQ. These things have their place, but they are not part of the divinely authorized equipment. It is Spirit and Word, and this is enough. I'm not trying to minimize your importance or maximize your importance. You are a servant in the spirit of the word for Christ in the world. This is his scepter extending from heaven, reaching down into earth and establishing his rule and his reign. Well, I want to conclude with a personal testimony. We've been talking about a powerful Christian ministry and I called a few of you about six weeks ago because I was ready to quit. I was down, down, down. Some of you took a while to get back to me. Hopefully I survived. <laughs> this particular week of doldrums, and it was a full seven days, I called my trusted friend and teaching elder in-house, Brent Kilman, at 7 o'clock on Saturday night saying, you need to preach for me tomorrow. I'm sick. Brent didn't pick up the phone. And my wife told me, get in that office and do something. And so what I did was, I didn't take down commentaries off the shelf. I didn't take, open out my Greek and my Hebrew. I went to the part of my library where I have books that, that I read years ago that said, this is why I wanted to go into the ministry. This is what it means to be a pastor. This is who I am as a servant of God. And what has happened since then is I've been reminded, as I've tried to share with you this morning, what I think are the, is the essence of a powerful Christian ministry. Where I am today is I am freshly dependent on God. I'm freshly renewed in my realization that I can do nothing apart from Christ. And by the way, I can do nothing apart from you because you are my brothers and sisters in this presbytery. And I depend on your comradeship 
You're standing on my right and my left to, to hold up my arms when I can. I depend on your prayers. I, I, it's a lifeblood for me. I need accountability. I need exhortation and admonishment. I need a listening ear that isn't judgmental. I need comfort and care. I need that. I need that for my elders. They're not just my employers. This isn't just my job. I need a living, breathing, vital relationship with God as it's carried out and expressed amongst the brethren. And so God brought me haltingly. He dragged me into the pulpit that next day. I don't know what I said or how I said it, but it got said. And I went home, and the entire week I did no work. But I, I, I rested, I prayed, I called friends, I called my mother on Monday. She said, you should have called me sooner. I read the Bible. So I want to encourage you in a powerful Christian ministry. Christ has paid it all. His work is finished. It's a battle. There's no other way to do it. And he's given you the tools that you need in his Holy Spirit and in his word. Let's go forward into battle. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. This incredible portion of Scripture, the sacred truth of our great Savior being seated at the Father's right hand, which is so important in the New Testament and so important for a vital Christian ministry that is filled with life, vibrancy, joy. Lord, we admit, we confess that we need this renewal. As a presbytery, as individuals, as churches, as elders, ruling elders, teaching elders. Our wives need this renewal. Our children need it. Our people need it. And you are so willing to give it. Would we ask? Would we put ourselves in a place of humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit in the discharge of our calling? It isn't that you've changed, Lord. We're the ones who have defected. We've slid away. We've We've left. Bring us back. Revive us in the midst. Revive your work in the midst of the years. Bring, bring fresh outpourings of your spirit upon your church. We know the need is there. We know it's about us. We know it's not about our neighbor. We know not about anyone else. Lord, you're dealing with us. So deal with us now. Not in a minute. Not in an hour. Not tomorrow. Not next week. But today. Right now. Deal with us, Lord. This is the answer to our prayers. We've heard from you. Do your mighty work in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue 
adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.